The Scream Kings are in no way responsible for any encounters with the paranormal, extraterrestrial abductions, eldritch insanity, hauntings, curses, hexes, demonic possessions, cryptozoological sightings, or any loss of sleep that results from listening to this podcast. This is the Scream Kings podcast. I'm Nathaniel Darkish. And this is Max George. I heard it was the hand of a podcaster. And the other hand is just out there. White people shit, man. Well, we are finally back. (laughs) Uh, Life. uh, It's it's like the opposite of that quote uh, from... From Jurassic Park, instead of like life finding a way to get us to the podcast, life finds a way to just delay things. Life, life finds a way to. Well, and I always think you know you go into the summer, I think with that that school mindset of like, ah, oh, the summer, nothing's going on in the summer. But we're both parents. There's a whole lot going on in the summer. Yeah. Uh, it's just one thing after another sometimes. And and admittedly, like especially on your end, a lot of really good things. Yeah, I am engaged, so that's exciting. Never woo, woo. thought that would happen ever again, and here we are. So cheers to that. Yeah, you got your new house. Just you know, living it up. Yeah, a lot of a lot of big changes. So we're living the dream. Heck yeah! <laughs> and uh, I'm back into the school year so you know whatever the opposite of living the dream is i guess living the nightmare <laughs> well nightmares are dreams so hmm. you know it's what it I is guess i guess li- living living reality <laughs> i think we just have to continually telling ourselves that you know it is what it is this is what being a grown-up is all about <laughs> yeah and admittedly i love my job even though it drives me crazy Fair enough. I think if you had a job that didn't drive you crazy, even if it was the best job on the planet, I would be a little suspicious. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, even even writing sometimes drives me crazy, so, you know, there we go. So, excuse us, we're coming up to 100 episodes, we're excited for that, but before we get there, let's talk about a, a recent film of, that we've seen. We are talking about uh, the brand new A24 hit... Talk to Me, directed by Danny and Michael Philippou. Hopefully I pronounced their last name right. <laughs> and uh, written by Danny Philippou and Bill Hinsman. Cannot go for more than 90 seconds. Am I clear? What happens after 90 seconds? <laughs> Don't want to stay. Light the candle to open the door. <laughs> Blow it out to close it. Put your hand on it. Now say, talk to me. Talk to me.
Yeah, so A24, we, we love a good A24 film. Our, our favorites, Hereditary and Midsummer, came from the same studio. And The Witch, and I mean, they, of course. they got lots of great stuff. Absolutely. Um, so I think, in part, I had some high expectations. It's A24, uh, and we'll get into it, um, because I don't know if this one fully delivered like some of the others. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that this is probably one of the first times that they're kind of more diving into uh, more kind of gateway or teen horror. Um, this this definitely felt like it was more for a teen audience, and uh, teenagers, we are not. <laughs> yeah, it, I, I don't know. We, we've talked a lot on the show about you know how trailers can kind of poison our expectations a little bit. And I really tried to avoid trailers for this one in particular. Um, I, I saw, saw it a few times. It's hard to go to a theater and not see trailers. Um, but I, I really did a good job, I think, at avoiding a lot of this. And it did not help. <laughs> so let's kind of maybe give a quick recap about the film. Nathaniel, do you want to give us just a, a SparkNotes version? Yes. Um, so the film is about basically a group of teenagers playing a game in which you communicate with the dead. Uh, in this case, that takes the form of this big, creepy plas- plaster, or at least plaster-encased hand that has writing all over it. You hold the hand, you say, talk to me, you can see a, a ghost, and then you can let it in, and it will possess you, and then your friends rip the hand off of you after about a minute um and yeah so it's like you know experiencing spirit possession uh in a very uh limited dose um so the the story basically follows after we see you know a cold open of a kid uh attacking his brother and then committing suicide uh, as a result of his interactions with this hand uh, this group of teenagers going through, uh, at first, you know, kind of playing with this as a party game and then having it kind of gradually destroy their lives in some interesting and messed up ways. Uh, a lot of this relates to our main character, uh, who is mourning the relatively recent death of her mother. And, of course, you know, to, to make things interesting, uh, one, of, uh, one of her friends, uh, the younger brother of her, her best friend, uh, whose name is Riley, he, uh, while using the hand, which his sister didn't want him to do, uh, apparently becomes possessed by the dead mother of, of our main character, Mia, and... Uh, so she lets it go on too long, and he violently uh, begins reacting after uh, they, they kind of go over the set time limit of 90 seconds. He starts bashing his head into furniture, and then basically Mia and friends are in a race against the clock to try to figure out how they can set their friend Riley free from this new kind of ghost hell that he seems to be stuck in, because whenever he uh, is conscious even in the hospital, he tries to kill himself again. Uh, and so, yeah, it's this race against the clock that uh, doesn't necessarily pay off in a way that I was hoping. But we'll get into that more uh, as we dive in. 
Overall, Nathaniel, I think you did a good job. It's a pretty simple and straightforward premise. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's nothing. It's not reinventing the wheel or anything. We see a lot of this kind of theme in movies like It Follows or The Ring. Um, or the Ouija movies or... The Grudge, even. Um, this kind of the curse that follows you is very ubiquitous when it comes to horror films. So yeah, let's... Let's dive in a little about what we really liked about the film, but also what kind of made it different from a lot of those other ones. And what, what would you say? What made Talk to Me different? Um, well, for starters, I, I feel like the way that we see teenagers portrayed is a lot stronger in this film than a lot of other films. A lot of times we have, you know... 25-year-olds pretending to be teenagers. They feel like 25-year-olds pretending to be teenagers. They've kind of lost that connection of, of what makes a teenager a teenager and, and kind of how they think and how they act and how they tend to do stupid stuff. Well, working you know professionally with teenagers every single day as a high school teacher, I felt like this movie really did kind of nail the mindset and the proclivity for teens to do something stupid like this <laughs> for the thrill yeah um I, I have to agree with you there as well but i also really enjoyed that they brought that kind of teenage mindset into the modern day um they very much were like teenagers that you would find on the street anywhere you go they they weren't these like high sophisticated or you know well-behaved teenagers let's say uh, they felt real and authentic, and that was a lot of fun. I think it aided the plot more so than these other films that we've talked about. Yeah, and and they uh, and what I liked is that they, even though they're you know kind of funny and they're they're joking around with each other and stuff like that, it doesn't feel super polished how they're talking to each other because you know that's also something that we see a lot is that this is you know a, a talented screenwriter who is really good at writing fun, witty banter. And teenagers will get some good zingers out there sometimes, but it's very rare that you have, like, a bunch of, you know, really clever, witty repartee bounce back and forth between a group of teenagers without it feeling, uh, well, scripted. You know, and so when the characters are talking to each other, it felt very real. Um, the friendships felt very real. You know, there's there's a lot of complicated feelings, and you know they're trying to support each other, but they're also like trying to do stupid, fun stuff, and they're, you know, letting themselves get away with dumb decisions because they're in pain or they're sad or they're upset. All of that felt very true to life in in a way that yeah, again, a lot of horror movies, a lot of movies, not even in the horror genre, just you know, where it's again. 50-year-old men writing teenagers, you know, a lot of times they don't feel real, and, and this really did. Um, and, and accordingly, I think that this film is, in many ways, a really good example of kind of great, like, gateway or teen horror, because I think this is going to be very relatable for that teen audience. I think it has some strong scares in it. I think that this is a good way to kind of step into the horror genre while you know feeling like there's characters that 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 maybe are relatable and and understandable to to those teenagers who are just getting into it 
but then can, you know, move into scarier and more interesting things from here. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with a lot of what you said. I also really appreciate, and I think this is something that A24 in particular does really well, is they're able to portray emotions on a very visceral level. A lot of these teenagers were going through a lot of their shit, um, especially Mia, our protagonist. Uh, she had just lost her mother, she's conflicted, she kind of joins up with this family that belongs to her best friend, and, and you really see that emotional journey throughout the movie. You see her pain even though she's not really acting any specific way. There's a lot of kind of internal turmoil that she portrays through her face, and we have to give credit to her as an actress, of course. Um, mm. But I do think kind of the creative force behind A24 really allows that to happen and where they're actual teenagers and they're scared and terrified of what's going on and it's fun, but then it turns into this horror. It, it was this kind of emotional roller coaster that you're going to see with any teenager, except for you and me when we were teens. We were the most emotionally mature of all teens. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, we we were just so grounded. Um but it, it yeah, it made the friendships feel pretty authentic, right? This yeah. this grounded and emotional kind of baseline that we had for the film made me believe that these two best friends would fight and that you know, even though they would get at each other, at the end of the day they do anything for each other cuz I don't know, the movie allowed us to believe that without any loopholes. Yeah, I, I agree. And and I definitely yeah want to highlight the performance of the actress who played Mia, uh, Sophie Wilde, because, yeah, like this is her first film role, and she really knocked it out of the park for delivering a, a variety of performances, because, you know, she's not just playing herself, but because, you know, Mia gets several times possessed and she does a really good job of kind of giving different voices and different uh you know ways of performing for each time she is uh you know letting a ghost in uh through the hand and so i liked seeing her range as an actress and and i think she's definitely going to be someone to to look for going forward yeah and that was in all honesty some of the best parts of the film was when she was kind of connecting with these dead ghosts dead people um and sophie wilde really just transformed themselves into someone completely different every time that they did that and again we can give credit to the special effects and the practical effects and the music but at the end of the day she was a star she did really good and a lot of the creepiest moments revolved around her acting performance i definitely agree um also let's just give props where it where it's due and in this case it's towards the props department see what i did there <laughs> uh, be, because the hand itself looks really good i like, it's i want one of those hands so much <laughs> yeah it's it's just uncanny it's upsetting it has uh basically the the words talk to me or something similar in a gazillion different languages all over it but it's all like that sharpie dawn you know, kind of rough, scuffed up look. Yeah, almost like this graffitied kind of you find it in an abandoned car lot or something, you know? Um, again, which mm -hmm. kind of is indicative of the teen vibe that 
this film has of these kids just found it somewhere and you know figured out it has magic powers uh, but i want one so bad i want one right on my desk right here Pazuzu. yeah everyone who is listening we are sorry if this is feeling a little disjointed here we are dealing with some pazuzian uh <laughs> curses tonight yeah, we, we've we had a good streak lately, and uh, apparently one of us pissed off Pazuzu because Max keeps dro- dropping off the the recording. Oh, uh, it's Pazuzu or CenturyLink, one of the two. Oh, actually, yeah, of those two, the greater evil's definitely CenturyLink. Absolutely. Ugh, CenturyLink. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about some of the moments that we thought were the most creepy or unsettling, scary... What did you think, Nathaniel? Okay. So, again, this is going to be coming from an unusual angle. But bear with me. (laughs) I feel like how it showed the spirit possession and, like, kind of what that felt like for the characters... Uh, and, and how it described it, you know, it used kind of the metaphor of, you know, you're you're in the car still, but you're not in the driver's seat. That did, I think, a better job of showing what possession is like it, to my understanding and experience, and I'll explain that more in a second here, than I think any other movie that I've seen. And, and so, like, if nothing else... That really hit home to me and and kind of scared me because it reminded me actually of a personal experience. So, uh, do we want to get into some story time? Um, Always. I'm very intrigued. I don't know if I know this story. Do I know this story? I actually am not sure if I have shared this story. Back in 2010, uh, I was in the middle of my LDS mission uh, in South Carolina. And one night, in the middle of the night, and I know that this is cliche and sounds ridiculous, but it was at three in the morning. (laughs) The witching hour! The witching hour, yes. And I know, like, that instantly just makes this all feel ridiculous, but no, this is is all 100% true. Uh, I woke up in the middle of the night, and it was the most terrifying experience ever because... Nothing was going on in the room. Nothing was out of the ordinary. You know, I had my my mission companion uh, in a bed just across the room. He was asleep. Everything was fine in the room. You know, nothing weird was going on. Except that I had something else thinking in my head. I can't really think of another way to describe it. Basically, I think uh, something was trying to possess me. Um, but it wasn't like fully in control because, you know, I was still in control of my body. I could walk around. I could, you know, I could still think, but it was almost, uh, to, to kind of use the metaphor that they use in the, in the movie of, you know, going back to the car analogy of someone else is in the driver's seat. To me, it felt like I was still in the driver's seat, but someone else was, had their hand on the wheel too. And where it was trying to jerk it out of my hands. 
um, I would try to think about something and like random stray thoughts that didn't feel like they were coming from me were there too. And it was like overwhelming. It was terrifying. Um, it, it eventually just went away. Like I, I just, I mean, at first I was just like, oh, maybe I'm still asleep, right? Maybe I'm still half asleep and I'm just not waking up. But uh, after a couple of hours of standing in a bathroom and trying to wake myself up and all of that to get it to go to go away and stop, it, it didn't. So yeah, it was uh, very upsetting. I eventually just, uh, through saying prayers and asking my companion to, to pray with me too in the middle of the night, it, it eventually kind of faded away. But it was really, really scary. Um, <laughs> and so this movie and kind of that analogy that it used and kind of just like some of the ways that it showed the characters sort of interacting with this idea of possession really spoke to me in a way that a lot of other possession films don't because, you know, it's usually just, you know, spider walking and, and pu puking pea soup kind of stuff. And this felt more authentic to me. And also, like, having experienced it, it was, it was absolutely terrifying what I experienced, but there was something thrilling about it, right? Like, I felt overwhelmed, and I could see why that would be appealing, especially to a dumb teenager. <laughs> you know, the same way that, you know, a drug is, is thrilling, or, or anything else, you know, just driving dangerously is thrilling. Like, anything where it's kind of this, this risky knife's edge uh, of safety and danger, that is, you know, a thrill. And, and people, you know, become adrenaline junkies to that. And so... That element of this film really spoke to me because I had just a little taste of it, and I, you know, for me, I'm not usually an adrenaline junkie, and so I kind of move away from it and go, ooh, ooh, not for me. But I can, again, see why it would be appealing. Yeah, I don't think I've heard that story. Thank you for sharing. Yes. It was, uh, it was really something else, and, um... To say the least. You know, like, <laughs> you know, it... Are anyone listening? You know, take take it for for what it is. You know, I, I was awake in the middle of the night, but it was uh, something that still kind of scares me to this day, and I think about it regularly. So, well, I have a ton of holy water and sage and all of those things if you need them. Good to know. <laughs> but it sounds like your prayer also worked, so maybe just stick with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it took a while, but it worked. Perfect. So, yes. Um, but yeah, so so in that way, that was what was appealing to me about this movie. I think more than anything else is that it captured that feeling. Well, and I, I do um, think it also kind of speaks a lot to what you were saying in regard to, like, the, the drug thing. Um, that, that line of danger, but also excitement and... You can get addicted to that really easily, especially dumb teenagers. And so I, I, I do think it speaks to that component of humanity as well. If those of us who may have experienced any sort of addiction or drug use, you know, that, that tug and pull that is so appealing, but also at the same time can, can ruin your life. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think definitely we can kind of look at this movie almost as a whole, as, as a metaphor for you know, drug addiction or things like that because, you know, it starts to spill over to other parts of life. It, you know, like, like you can kind of pick it apart and just go like, oh yeah, like 
This is also a movie about addiction. Or even trauma, you know, people who get addicted oh, yeah. to their trauma and start using it as, you know, an excuse to to do terrible things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and so I like that it functions on its own, but it also does have those elements where we can at least kind of explore some of those themes without it necessarily being quite as one-to-one oh, well, this is a symbol for this that it could have done. I'm glad it didn't go that route and, and become a, like a fable. Uh, yeah, so, so it, it kind of just let it be what it was and let us kind of figure it out, which for a movie like this, I think that was the right decision. Absolutely. Um, and to, to highlight you know some specific scenes that I thought were, were really good... I mean, I think definitely, like, you know, the, the pinnacle scene is when Riley uses the hand, right? When, when you know, gets possessed allegedly by the, the dead mom and, you know, then goes over the time limit and starts, you know, running around smashing his head into furniture. That whole scene is really intense. It really, you know, ups the scare factor a lot. Um, but, yeah, some of the other scenes, you know, kind of how they sort of build up to to that moment, you know, had some good moments of, of kind of scares. The, the ghosts looked creepy. They had a, a really cool design for those. But it was, you know, never too... Uh, I don't know. Like, like that could have not worked. Uh, but I felt like how the ghosts were shown uh, made it creepy, but they didn't overdo too many of them. Yeah. I'd say a few of the ghosts were overblown, but as a whole, I thought that they... They weren't. Yeah, really, it was it was pretty straightforward in its approach. Uh, the the ghosts weren't anything crazy. There were no cloven hooves. There was no you know smoke and brimstone for the most part. Uh, it it was a very it was a horror movie that was grounded in reality, in my opinion, a little too much. But I think they did that on purpose, and it it did execute for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, I I really enjoyed the scene with Mia. Um, I get really annoyed when people become possessed by things and they just get the black eyes. I think that started Mm -hmm. in the Supernatural series, which was fun at the time, but, you know, now it's everywhere and it's just not scary to me at all. It's like, ooh, black eyes, oh no. Um, but when Mia did it, she kind of did a lot of body horror alongside it, and it worked really well. Um, they were able to take kind of a trope that's been overdone and kind of breathe some new air into it, and I really appreciated that. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, the black eyes combined with, like, a big smile and, oh, hello, I like you. Mm-hmm. That's... That's a well, and even like the the head tilt to like a weird, disgusting angle, and ah, it was just great, great, great. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, that's kind of where the great sort of runs up. Yeah. Um, yeah. Should we get into the the grit? <laughs> yeah. Um. First one, very straightforward in terms of just being confusing, is... Okay, so the the mom died, I think she died like three years before this movie. But, like, the first thing that we see Mia doing is what looks like attending a funeral. 
from what I can pick apart, I don't think it was actually a funeral. It was some sort of, like, remembrance party. But everyone dressed in funeral clothes and, uh, and went to the graveside. So it seemed like a funeral. And so that just, like... The, the the whole timeline of that got really confusing. They would say stuff and I'd go, wait, but didn't she just get back from the funeral? But no? What, what's going on? So that was one of those things where, like, eventually I sorted it out and kind of had the answers, but it just felt, like, weirdly sloppy in terms of the, the writing. And, the, I don't know, like, the mom's dead. That's all that matters. I don't necessarily need to see you know, uh, a Remembrance Day thing and all of that. Like, just say, yeah, she's having a hard time because her mom's dead. Well, and we talked a lot earlier on about how a lot of the emotions were rooted in reality for these teenagers. And I think this mm -hmm. is where that divergence started to happen. Mia, of course, should be grieving the loss of a mother. I'm not saying that that's not real. But it just was like this overwhelming plot point that... I don't know, there was no depth to it. There was no resolution. There was no conflict over the grief or the trauma. And again, I'm not trying to say that there's a certain way to portray trauma and grief, but I just, I kind of got bored with it. There was no connection that I had with Mia and the loss of her mother, other than it made her really sad and kind of caused her life to fall apart in some capacity and i get that i've been there mm -hmm. not with the death of a parent but in other things uh, but i don't know it left me lacking in a lot of ways it just felt like oh mom died and she's big time sad all the time yeah well it i think maybe maybe the the thing that that you're not connecting with and and i i agree completely is just that it it couldn't decide what it wanted to do with with the death of the mother yeah right? because there's you know this whole big subplot about like she doesn't talk to her dad as much anymore and her dad is like withholding something and and the thing that he's withholding is that like she clearly killed herself but he didn't want mia to feel bad or blame herself for that you know he wanted to just be like oh it was an accident but like she clearly took a bunch of pills and try to kill herself um and so it and and like it it starts to go in an interesting direction because then like the ghost through riley starts saying oh i didn't kill myself but it never really resolved in a meaningful way well and like that's a that was another issue i had and it's part of these notes is there's this huge emotional component to the plot about the loss of the mother and then we have this mechanism to speak with the dead. Mia gets to now speak with her mother. And seemingly it's very cathartic and helpful for Mia, as anyone would think. But then the mom ghost starts to get insidious and is trying to like twist Mia's intentions and make her do terrible things. Um, and there's this one scene in particular where... They do this reverse possession where Mia gets to possess the body of a ghost, which is a fascinating idea for me. I really liked that. And it showed this weird, almost hellish landscape and demonic laughs and a lot of demonic imagery. And then it just never went back there, never fully explained why all of these ghosts that are communicating with the living 
are out to get them and nefarious, and I just... I was confused. Yeah, and... It seemed to hint at that, like, maybe the ghosts aren't what they seem to be. Maybe they, like, will wear the face of loved ones sometimes to try to trick you. And I'm okay with that idea, but it never really gave us answers one way or another. Like, if some of the ghosts were like, oh, yeah, no, like, you can't trust any of them. None of them are your, or, you know, your family members. No, you know, that would have been interesting. That would have been you know, more worthwhile, but it seems like maybe it is her mom, maybe it's not, we don't get a clear answer, maybe her mom is, ghost is lying to her, maybe she's just something else that's pretending to be her mom. <laughs> it just never quite God. decides what it wants to do with that. And and again, like, if if it had tied all of those threads together in a real neat, beautiful knot, I would have just been smitten with this movie. But it just never quite tied those together. It just couldn't quite decide. It had all of these interesting balls up in the air that they're juggling, and then it caught five out of the eight at the end of the movie. Yeah. You know me. I love my occultism. I think this was a missed opportunity to really dive into this concept of speaking with the dead. And, and the afterlife, and what does that mean? And who are you really talking to? Are these spirits that are actual spirits? And if we want to go the purgatory route, you know, are they trapped in this this realm that there is no escape, and they're miserable, and they want to drag everyone there with them? Or are they inhuman and more nefarious and tricking us? You know, the whole dumb great deceiver Satan theory. And, and really kind of diving into the this concept of speaking with the dead is such a risky thing in the entire zeitgeist of our humankind. And so I was just confused. And that confusion led to boredom, to be quite frank. Um, by the end of the movie, I was kind of relieved that it was over because I just... Nothing was explained. I, I didn't have any strings to pull or to keep me interested other than you know is mia gonna see what's really going on behind the hand finally um and then they did a lovely insidious twist for us do you want to talk about that <laughs> yeah well so <laughs> you, you kind of referenced it like the that reverse possession thing right so you know when Riley is unconscious, sedated in the hospital because, you know, again, he keeps bashing his head into things whenever he's conscious. You know, they they all, like, sneak in there, they have the hand, they try to get him to, you know, because they didn't, like, blow out the candle or something, which is part of the thing. Anyway, they are trying to get him freed from this. It doesn't happen. And then Mia ends up seeing what's happening to Riley in this weird ghost dimension thing, it feels like a watered-down version of the further from Insidious, which already, you know, in and of itself is, is a red flag for me because <laughs> the further is so confusing and chaotic and kind of pointless. Would you say um, it's further from knowledge than we can understand? Sure, I, I, I would say that. <laughs> further nonsense um but but yeah it just 
felt like they were big fans of Insidious, maybe. But then it just seems like they're they're torturing Riley somehow. But then they also want his body, which didn't really make any sense. Okay. Like, it just seems like... Like, why was Riley this fascinating, you know, vessel for these ghosts to be so attracted to? Um, his well, and, soul was, like, in I, danger, was lost, or, you know, Lord knows what was actually happening. But again, there was no explanation. Mia was just hell-bent on saving Riley. And, like, I liked that they were just having to try stuff because they didn't really have clear answers because, you know, the closest source of information that they could find was, you know, the brother of the kid at the start of the movie who kills himself after dealing with the hand who, you know, then passed the hand on to some, you know, losers who are now using it for parties. Um, That whole thing just... Okay, like, I'm, I'm glad that he didn't have all of the answers, because that would have been really stupid. But then they just are just kind of grasping at random straws to try to resolve it. Like, I felt like it just, again, was just kind of like, hey, there's a bunch of tropes that we can kind of play with from some other movies. If we sort of vaguely nod at those, and then we just say, okay, it's done now, then we're good, right? Like... It just feels like they didn't know how to end it, and so they just, yeah, uh, reference this thing and reference this thing and reference this thing in, in all these subtle ways. And clearly, those pieces add up together to, to equal a clear, concise resolution. But no, because we don't have any really uh, real understanding of the afterlife, why the ghosts were going after Riley why they want human bodies so bad, why they're always willing to play this weird game to get into someone's body for a minute. Um, you know, what's... It just, it, it feels... <laughs> yeah, like, so half-baked in terms of concepts that, like, I, I just don't know where to go with it. Well, um, and it, it was kind of creating the slow burn, I felt like, for a majority of the movie, and then... You know, slow burn can be really satisfying once you get that crazy moment. And with this, it just didn't. We got the weird insidious ending. Um, No explanation really happened. It just fell flat for me. Completely flat. And then Mia stabs her dad because she's confused and is seeing a ghost. And then goes and steals Riley and no no one in that hospital is competent to stop anyone as or to stop her as she's running out of the hospital with him in a wheelchair not to mention like to... everyone apparently took you know super serum from the Marvel universe because they were pretty resilient to damage <laughs> oh yeah oh, I'll, I'll get to that <laughs> But, but yeah, and then she just, like, tries to, like, shove him in front of some traffic or something, maybe. But then she shoves herself in front of it instead, I guess, maybe. And that means that he's now free for some reason. And now she's dead. And that didn't make a lick of sense. Yeah, and then and then we see her as a ghost. And, and everyone is fine. And her dad is fine, even though he got stabbed and bled out real bad for hours. And, you know... Riley is totally healed, even though he 
effed up his face so bad that I don't even, you know, he, he would probably be unrecognizable for the future, and just, yeah, everyone was very resilient to damage, right? Like, people are getting shot, stabbed, <laughs> run over, face bashed into <laughs> furniture, run over, everything like that, and everyone is just fine after a couple of weeks in the hospital, except for Mia. And, like, that just was kind of a weird choice. Like, it seems like there was, like, oh, man, this is going to have kind of a, a surprisingly big body count. Oh, no, just kidding. It just actually only one character died, and it didn't really say anything. And then, yeah, okay, if she's dead, if she's a ghost, then what does that mean? Is is that ghost her mom, then? Is is she still around? And... and- I don't know, just... What about Riley? Why is he free? Who was after Riley? Why were the ghosts after Riley? Why did it matter? Why... Yeah, why did they let him go as soon as uh, a traffic accident happened near him? Why is Mia's soul better than Riley's soul? What... <sighs> I mean, we could go on and on. I think we're starting to talk in loops here, but... It, it just... <sighs> I don't know, I... Uh, my fiance, I can call him that now. That's kind of weird. Uh, he, one of his best friends was absolutely fell head over heels for this film. Loved it. Loved it, loved it, loved it. And I just, I, I don't get it. I really don't. And if someone can explain it to us, that'd be awesome. Maybe we don't have life experiences that can connect with it in a way. I mean, you have more than me for sure. Um, I would just I, I want to hear from somebody like what made this a good movie for you because I, I thought it was a big old flop yeah well and also yeah like I'm, I'm seeing all of these you know headlines A24's scariest movie yeah like, did you like, see The Witch did you see Hereditary um, I watched Midsummer again the other day and I was like this is leagues more terrifying than that movie ever was and ever wishes to be yeah. So maybe we're just we've yeah. seen too many horror movies, Nathaniel, and we're just desensitized. Maybe, I don't know. It just again, the problem isn't the things like the things that it did well. I thought it did really really well. It just it just it just crapped the bed at the yep. end. It to use my my famous turn of phrase. <laughs> oh goodness. What as we kind of move past the pros and cons of the film, I, you wrote this down in the show notes, which I was really appreciative about, and that is, you know, the the concept of talking to the dead and getting guidance or divining from those who've passed on has been around forever, yep. um, and it's a it's a fascinating kind of oh, one second. Sorry, Taylor apparently left her phone in here and it went off. It's okay. So loud. All right. Um, I was just saying, it's a very fun concept to talk about. You know, all the different types of ways to speak with those who are trapped in purgatory. And how many of them involve games? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you have your your classic... uh, 
Bloody Mary, you know, all those silly games that are out there. But and we've talked till we were blue in the face about the the Ouija board. Yes, and I wore my Ouija board shirt yesterday, so I can talk to the dead. There we go. But yeah, so I found this really interesting article about uh, what I mean. The, the one of the oldest ones that that archaeologists have, uh, and I guess uh, I don't know, various historians and stuff have, have found that that they believe is is also a, a game intended to communicate with the dead, um, which is uh, from uh, ancient Egypt, uh, so around fifteen hundred BC, uh, the game Senet, which apparently plays kind of similar to Parcheesi. Uh, began to be used to communicate with spirits. Uh, so it had been around for like 700 years already uh, and was just like a relatively popular parlor game. And like, you know, I've, I, I saw some of the boards. It's basically just two rows of squares uh, and then you just like move pawns based on like dice rolls or something like that. Anyway, you know, a, really, a relatively very straightforward game. But it had some elements where, you know, like, it used some symbols uh, that were specifically associated with the afterlife. Um, you know, everything from the the judgment, which I can't remember what that's called, but when, when your heart is weighed, um, and, and some other things, you know, of, of where then a, a spirit can go. Just, you know, kind of used as, as sort of symbols in the game. Accordingly, it seems like someone then started getting the idea of hey, what if this game could then allow us to communicate with the dead? And so they started incorporating more symbols that related to that. Um, and so then it started to be basically a game that you would play against allegedly a spirit, where, you know, basically because the the things are randomized through, you know, throwing the dice, you, you know, play for yourself, and then you roll the dice to find out what what happens for the ghosts, the ghosts piece. And allegedly, they can communicate with you in some way based on sort of where the pieces land. Um, of course, you know, a lot of this is just, you know, sort of taken from little historical scraps that they have been able to find evidence of. You know, there are... Um, but, but you know, like the specifics of like, okay, like, how, how do you actually play it? How do you actually communicate with the dead based on where the pieces are landing all of that's kind of lost to the ages but like there is evidence of, of people yeah playing you know against a ghost essentially and so so yeah it seemed like it was a way that that people could communicate with the dead um but of course there's other ways that people like to try to communicate I just want to be a part of that conversation they're just like hey we're playing this cool parcheesi game do you think we can talk to the dead with it? <laughs> I mean, like, we already have this symbol that means this thing, so... Like, we're already halfway there. Uh, there... I mean, we could talk ad... I mean, probably the same thing that happened with Tarot, right? Like, you know, it was a card game, and then people were like, oh... These, these pictures look like they can be spooky. We must be able to talk to the dead. Or read your future. Yeah, and I mean, you also have pendulums, which go back to ancient Romans and ancient Greeks, where uh, you ask the pendulum a question, and if it 
spins one way, it's a yes, and spins another way, it's a no, or can tell you the gender of an unborn baby, these kind of silly things where you're petitioning spirits to guide your requests. And people still do. Yes, it's very popular. Um, and then, of course, even dowsing rods, which were huge in the early Americas. Uh, they came over from Germany around the 1500s, where you get two sticks and ask the spirits to show you where water is or bury treasure or, you know, whatever you're looking for that day. Mm-hmm. And then you have tarot, which is completely true and real. No, uh, no, no, no critiques for me. <laughs> so uh, again, I, I wish we could have seen a little bit more of a dissection of some of those things with talk to me, but alas, we have to rate it for what it was. Indeed. So let's talk screams. How scary was this movie for you, Max? Uh, I gave it a two. I was not particularly afraid at all. But there were some creepy images that I thought, ooh, that's kind of spooky. That's fair. Uh, I gave it a four, and again, a lot of that really just boils down to my own personal connection with some of the subject matter uh, and how it made me think about that. Though I will say the memories are more of an eight or a nine, while what I saw in the movie, well, was a four. (laughs) Uh, As far as crowns go, I gave it a four. Like I said, I was kind of bored in this film. I don't get the appeal. Uh, If someone would like to explain it to me, I would really appreciate that. I am giving it a six for crowns. Um, And the more I think about it and the more I talk about it, honestly, kind of the more it's gone down. Um, I think it's a fun movie. I think there are some great scares. I think it's definitely going to find its audience, and I think it has largely found its audience. But... It, it could have been so freaking good, guys. <laughs> it could have been amazing, and it really just failed to tie stuff together in a satisfying way. Agreed. So, um, how are you seeing Spooky these days? Um, I went and saw what I think is one of the best summer films that I've seen uh, in a while, uh, and I'm not talking about Oppenheimer and or Barbie, both of which are phenomenal. <laughs> uh, Mark and I went and saw Haunted Mansion, which kind of surprised me a little bit. You know, making a movie about a Disney ride is always kind of hit or miss. Uh, and the last time that they made a Haunted Mansion movie, it was definitely a uh, hot garbage miss. But this film, I adored it. I've been listening to the soundtrack nonstop. Um, we had just gotten back from Disneyland and kind of recognized a lot of the Easter eggs that they were dropping. The music's iconic. They give some lore behind some of the ghosts and it just filled my little spooky heart. Um, pivoting in a very dark and morbid direction though, is I just finished reading American Ripper by Patrick Kendrick. Uh, I've been on a huge true crime kick lately, probably the longest kick I've been on as far as true crime goes. Uh, This novel is about John Gerard Schaefer, who should be much more known than even, I'd say, the Bundy and and a few of the other popular serial killers. This guy was a monster. Um, He was a cop 
So there was a big power dynamic there. It's estimated that he killed probably 29 women. Uh, he's a real bad guy. And the book really does a good job at talking about his victims and who they were and and giving them a good tribute while also trying to break down his corrupt mind and understand why he did the things he did. Highly recommend. Okay, that definitely sounds worth picking up. How about you? So, I have mostly been sticking around with a lot, yeah, literary kind of stuff uh, when it comes to staying spooky recently. Uh, so I'm going to highlight two, uh, two things. Um, the first one is uh, a very good uh, haunted house novel that has kind of an interesting twist on what a haunted house is. Uh, so it's called It Will Just Be Us by Joe Kaplan. And I, as a whole, really dug it. Didn't quite stick the landing as well as I wanted, but like as a whole, it, it's really cool. It's basically about this family that lives in a haunted house. You can definitely see that this haunted house is very much inspired by the Winchester house. But basically, they live in it and they see ghosts around them constantly. But kind of how that works is that, you know, sometimes they'll just walk into a room and like a scene from the past will be playing out. And uh, sometimes it's even things from their own pasts. Uh, you know, they'll they'll walk in and, and, you know, these two adult sisters will look and, and see them as children playing together or, or things like that. And so it's, you know, kind of treating the past as a ghost, which is really interesting. And then it starts, you know, kind of playing with what if you then start to see stuff from the future and what, and, you know, then the question is what can you do about it? Huh. Interesting. And so it's it's fun. It's, uh, I think, definitely worth picking up. It has some, some really solid scares. I, I liked it. I liked it a lot. So uh, it will just be us by Joe Kaplan. Uh, the other one is kind of taking a, a little bit of a different angle. Um, so this is uh, a piece called Dark One Forgotten, uh, which is written by Brandon Sanderson and Dan Wells. Um, we've had Dan on the podcast. He was actually our very first guest, which uh, was a delight. Uh, and so, you know, we, so his name is associated with, with, many other genres, but also with horror. But Brandon Sanderson's pretty much, you know, a straight-up fantasy guy. Um, so that might raise some eyebrows when, when you hear me talking about a Brandon Sanderson thing. But uh, Dark One Forgotten, what it is, is it is a audio drama that um, is written as though it is like a true crime investigative podcast. Uh, basically, it is this woman who um, finds out about this like world famous musician who was just you know set the world on fire. You know she was Yo Yo Ma levels of, of famous in the orchestra world and that kind of stuff, and then was horrifyingly murdered. Uh, like you know her eye was cut out. She was. Uh, shot in the back by an arrow, like, you know, this, like, really horrifying murder, and then everyone just forgot about her. Like, even her mother just forgot about her. And so it's her trying to figure out why that happened. Um, and, you know, of course, there's some supernatural elements to it, but it's this, uh, you know, sort of podcast-style investigation to uh, figure out how how this happened, 
And yeah, maybe there's a supernatural serial killer involved. So it's a, a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. And it's uh, actually going to be tied into a novel that Brandon Sanderson and Dan Wells are going to release, I think, next year, uh, just called Dark One, which is like portal fantasy with a really dark twist. Um, and so, yeah, it's going to be as horror as Brandon Sanderson gets. Um especially in conjunction with this piece. And yeah, I think it's a lot of fun. I think it's definitely worth picking up, especially if you're a, San uh, a fan of, of Sanderson or or Dan Wells. But just, you know, if, if you like fun, uh, kind of supernatural stories with that, uh, use the, the podcasting investigative format, especially, this is definitely for you. Awesome. Sounds like we got some good recommendations. Everyone, stay spooky. Stay spooky! Need even more Scream Kings? Here's our obligatory shameless social media plug. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Scream Kings Pod. You could also email us at ScreamKingsPodcast at gmail.com. Help us reach a wider audience of horror fans by leaving a review on iTunes or by sharing a link on social media. You can also support the show by going to patreon.com forward slash Scream Kings. Stay spooky.